Okay, uh, while everybody's taking their seats, I want to remind you, because we have some visitors here, and they're welcome to uh, take a copy of this book. They're available in the foyer. It's called We Will Not Be Silenced by Erwin Lutzer. And this is an outstanding book. He has um, endorsements at the beginning by people like Tony Evans, Eric Metaxas, um, let me see a few other names you may know, Cal Thomas, and several others that, whose names I don't necessarily recognize. And he deals with what's going on today. The book is called We Will Not Be Silenced. I think he could have titled it We Will Not Be Canceled because everybody's out there trying to cancel anybody with a Judeo-Christian biblical worldview. And so some of his chapter titles are How We Got Here, Rewriting the Past to Control the Future, uh, Use Diversity to Divide and Destroy, uh, Freedom of Speech for Me But Not for Thee, Sell It as a Noble Cause, How Propaganda is Used to Shape a Population's Perception of Reality So They Will Not Change Their Minds Even When Confronted by Compelling Counter-Evidence. We've destroyed the, we are in the process of destroying the ability of the American citizen to think critically. Uh, Capitalism is the disease, socialism is the cure. He is countering that, of course. Uh, Join uh, how the left is joining with radical Islam to destroy America. Vilify, vilify, vilify. And then his last chapter, his conclusion is, wake up and strengthen what remains. If you are alive and breathing, we are in the generation time right now where we're facing the battle of the century the battle we are in today, and of course, ultimately, it is a spiritual battle, is the battle that will determine the future of your children and your grandchildren. And we cannot minimize or state this too lightly, what is happening in our culture. And thankfully, there are a number of voices that are gearing up and are coming out with, uh, with good books like this one, several others that are out there, And I want to encourage you that you need to read these. You need to get up to date on what is going on, understand the rationales and the arguments to be able to give an answer for the hope that is in us, making the gospel the issue. And um, it's going to take time. It's going to take study. And unfortunately, we live in a world today when probably fewer than 10% of those who call themselves evangelical Christians even have a, the, the smattering of a frame of reference to be able to properly understand what is going on. When I started teaching in the church history course this semester, the Chafer Seminary course on Monday nights, I had a comment from a good friend that said, You know, a lot of those people who are probably in your class are having difficulty understanding some of the things that you're talking about because they don't have a background in philosophy. And the early church for the first five or six hundred, well, actually up until the Protestant Reformation and even after, but especially in the early two or three hundred years, 
was really struggling and having to defend itself against the incursions of the contemporary worldview of that time, which was Neoplatonism. And if I mention Neoplatonism and you go, what is that? Well, guess what? Now you can relate to some of those students in the course. Uh, because we have to be have an education to be able to understand the influences in history. And if you want to come to an understanding of what is going on today, you have to take the time to really self-educate and look words up and try to figure out what all of these things really are. What is cultural Marxism? What is Marxism? Now, most of you are over 50 that are in here, and I will tell you a friend of mine had a... Everybody raised their hand one Sunday morning, and he said, how many of you here can tell me what Marxism is? Nobody under 40 raised their hand. And then he said, uh, how many of you can give me a definition of socialism? And nobody under 40 could raise their hand. And he asked a couple of more questions in that same vein, and nobody under 40 knew anything about any of the terms that are related that are at the heart of what is happening in our culture today. And so it is, it is really, really important to have an education today. And what's happened is that the, what is happening in so many schools and school districts around the world, see, I'm already being attacked right there. There, all by itself, there went my, uh, there we go, PowerPoint, and we lost it on the screen. Wait a minute. There it is. Well, that came back. But anyway... So many <clears throat> so education as in many areas in this country has really fallen on such hard times that students aren't taught civics anymore. They're not taught Western civilization anymore. They're not taught economics. When I was in school, now I sound like an old person. Don't say it. Um, that we ha- civics was mandatory, world history was mandatory, economics was mandatory, and I just thank God that I had a very conservative, solid civics teacher when I was a senior in high school. But today, if they get anything like that, it's coming from an extremely biased leftist worldview. So. We need to be aware. You need to be trained. And above all, you need to be in in the Word every single day, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, uh, memorizing Scripture. That is the ultimate answer, and that is the only thing that's going to really cure, get rid of the garbage that's in, in all of our own souls. And so that's the solution. But we have a battle in front of us, and we can't just think that everything is going to be as it has been, because it's not. The world has radically changed in the last two years. And so we need to be, we, we need to be on target, and we need to revise our, our priorities so that we're prepared. Otherwise, we're going to lose this war. Now, we know who wins in the end, and it may be God's plan that this is a lead up to the rapture and the tribulation, but we have no guarantee of that. Civilizations for the last 6,000 years have risen and fallen, and we may just be another one on the uh, pathway of God's plan. But we need to be prepared as individuals for what's going on. So uh, I encourage that, and I will mention other books along the way in the next few months that I would encourage you to uh, encourage you to read. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that if necessary, we can uh, confess sin to God in silent prayer. Make sure we're prepared to study the word, and then we will get into our passage this evening. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful for your grace because it's through your grace that we have a salvation where we have received perfect forgiveness. The sin penalty has been paid and we have been given your righteousness and we have been given eternal life. Father, we live in the devil's world and we live in a dark and evil world where there are many forces arrayed against you and against any who represent you. And they seek to destroy our spiritual life, to destroy us, to minimize, to dehumanize, uh, to remove us from their presence because we remind them that there is a God and that they are accountable to you. Father, we pray that as we study the issues that Peter warns congregation about in Second Peter, that we might recognize that these things are true today and that they are all around us and that we too must be on our guard. This is not academic his- history or theology. This is real life for every day. And we pray that you would open our eyes to understand what is going on around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, and we are going to continue into the next few verses. Now, as I pointed out as we have gone through this, that in verses 1, 2, and 3, there are, there's the warning that false teachers will come. It's a future tense. Jude has very similar material in his one chapter to what's in this chapter, but there the false teachers have arrived. And they will bring in destructive heresies and bring on themselves, as it's translated, destruction, but they're two different words that we saw in the the Greek. And what is going on here is that, that those who buy into this basically can destroy their spiritual life or not have the gospel at all. And they dishonor and revile the way of truth, the gospel. So when I started this, I talked about the fact that these false teachers 
were, could be believers or could be unbelievers. And in other passages, it's clear that they could be, that, that as Paul warns the uh, Ephesian church in Acts 20, that there will be, um, there, that some of these elders in front of him will become false teachers, and they are wolves in sheep's clothing. So they're going to be believers who get sucked into false teaching, and they will lead others into false teaching. They will get sucked into it, and then they as believers will lead others into it. But the false teachers, at least at the beginning of this chapter, as Paul, I mean, as Peter describes them, are viewed as unbelievers. They are not saved, and we'll see some of the evidence for that as we go through the passage. But part of the evidence is the contrast in the fact that um, in verses four, uh, 4 through 11, he contrasts those who are righteous, those who are godly, with those who are unrighteous and those who are ungodly. And in this chapter, that shows that they are, it's a contrast between believers and unbelievers. Uh, and the classic example is where we ended a couple of weeks ago with Lot, in verse 7, he's called righteous Lot. And the word righteous is not used to describe his lifestyle. It's not experiential righteousness because Lot is living in a den of sin and he has compromised with it and yet it still bothers him. We ended last time talking about him and and looking at those passages, and as carnal as he was, and as uninterested as he was in spiritual things, and his priorities were all related to being in the right social group and living in the comfortable culture and society of Sodom and Gomorrah. Nevertheless, the text says that he was his soul was oppressed and that he, he was tormented, he was tortured when he saw the things that were going on around him. And he was uh, not totally desensitized to the, the sinfulness of those around him. And unfortunately, what happens when we begin to compromise uh, and put up with what goes on around us, because it always starts, it's the old story of the frog who's put into a pot and the water is cold and then it gradually begins to heat up and heat up until as his uh, body adjusts to the temperature of the water, it boils the frog to death. Whereas if you put a frog in hot water, just jump out. Uh, But by gradually changing the temperature, he gets used to it. And that's what happens in, in our culture. And I raised the question that what, what we need to all do is constantly ask ourselves, are we getting too comfortable with the perversion of the culture that we're exposed to? Have we just uh, accepted things too, too much to where we have become uh, somewhat numbed to what is going on? Or was Lot more spiritually sensitive, as carnal and disinterested as he was in spiritual things, are we less sensitive than Lot? So the theme of this section is that God is able to, it's stated in verse 9, God is able to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. 
So as we look at this chapter, oh, we're having fun tonight, aren't we? It just won't, oh, there it goes, finally, it advanced. Okay, chapter 2, verses 1 to 22, the first part, the certainty of the false teachers, and the second part, the destructiveness of their deception. And then we see in verses 4 through 10, the 10a, illustrations of the certainty of God's judgment, as well as the fact that God in his grace delivers the godly, that is believers, out of certain testing or actually the testing is put for the consequences of the testing and they are delivered. And then we get into the second part of verse 10 down through 22 and we start seeing the characteristics of the false teachers and that's going to be uh, interesting material as we'll begin to get into that today. Now I showed you, and I've got the, I've got verses four through eleven up on the screen, so it's a little small. But I want you to see the structure, so we have to have the whole thing up there. It starts with an if clause in verse four: "For if God did not spare the angels," so we know that if there's an if, there's a then. If this, then that. So this is an extremely long if clause. That's technically in grammar, it's called an apodosis, or excuse me, a protesis, pra meaning first. And he says, if God did not spare the angels and did not spare the ancient world, and if turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes and delivered righteous lots, he just goes on and on and on. Then it's not until you get down to verse 9 that you have the word then. So all that we studied from uh, 4 down to 8 is establishing the foundation that God is going to uh, deliver the godly, the believer, out of the consequences of his judgment. And all of the examples of judgment in those sections have to deal with the eternal uh, judgment of unbelievers. So that's one reason that uh, we believe that uh, these false teachers are viewed as unbelievers. But we will see the role of believers as we get down towards verse 18. Uh, Believers who get seduced by them are brought into the picture. And so we're down into 9 through 11, The principle is laid down there that then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So the examples are the angels who sinned, that is those who were called the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, who took on human bodies and intermarried and had sexual relations with Uh, the daughters of men, producing a hybrid race in the attempt to destroy the ability of the human race to produce a Savior who was truly human, who was um, 
uh, uh, the seed of the woman to fulfill the promise of Genesis uh, 3, uh, 15. The judgment of the ancient world by the flood, the judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then the deliverance of Noah and the deliverance of Lot. So we see that God makes the statement here that he knows how to deliver the godly. We'll look at that word in just a minute. Uh, out of temptations. And that's the word that is up on the screen, pirasmas, which is an unusual word to put here. It has two basic meanings, as I've put on the screen. One is that it is an attempt to learn the nature or character of something. It's testing it. It's, it's evaluating it. it. It is the idea of, of taking uh, metal and heating it up in order to burn off the impurities. So you're testing it for evaluation to make sure it is pure and there it's not going to be weakened uh, by various impurities. So it is to test the character of something. That's how James uses it in James uh, 1, 3, 3 and 4. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various perasmoi, various tests. Because you know that the testing or the evaluation of your faith, that is the faith that, that what you believe, not faith in the sense of the act of believing, but faith in the sense of the body of truth that you believe, that it is the testing of the Word of God, the teaching that you have learned of the Word of God that is in your soul, the doctrine that is in your soul is being tested. Are you going to rely on God's Word are you going to rely on your own abilities to solve your problems? So that's how James uses it. It's the testing, the evaluation of your, of your faith. The other way that it is, it is, the word is used is an attempt to make, or, or to make someone do, to entice them into doing something that is wrong, to enticing them to sin. And so God tests us in the first meaning, but not in the second meaning. God tempts no one. He entices no one, no one to sin. But so if you translate this as deliver us out of temptations, what exactly would that look like? We know from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that there is no t- testing taken us, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will make a way to escape that we may be able to endure it. And I pointed this out last time, that, and I keep pointing this out because when people quote that, they often hear the phrase, he'll make a way to escape and forget the next phrase, which is that you may be able to endure it. Escaping it doesn't mean that you can get out from under it. It means that you have a way to endure it with joy, James 1.3, counting it all joy when you encounter various parasmos. It's the same word. And so the idea of 1 Corinthians 10.13 is God is going to give us the spiritual tools to be able to handle whatever challenges, problems, difficulties, testing, temptations, whatever comes our way. 
And he has, because he has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He's given us the completed canon of Scripture. We are indwelt by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We have been given the wealth of Christ by being in Christ. We have an identity uh, that no believer prior to the church age ever had. And so it's not waiting for you to learn it. It's already given to you. You have to learn about it in order to be able to use it. But we already have it. it, and it is ours. We don't have to jump through hoops to get it. We just have to read the Bible, study the Word, and and learn what to do. So here, that does, that meaning doesn't quite fit because it's a contrast between those who are under punishment for the day of judgment and those who are delivered out of temptation. So the second, uh, the second uh, clause there indicates future judgment at the great white throne judgment that will is only for unbelievers and they will all go to eternity in the lake of fire. So that is the contrast. So what does perasmas mean here in this context? It is a figure of speech. I've talked about these before. Technically they're called metonymies. It is when you put something for something it is closely related to. Okay, so so you can hear something like a figure of speech, like the eyes of God go to and fro. Well, he's not actually talking about literal eyes, but what do eyes do? Eyes are the opening to our soul, and we receive enlightenment and learning and knowledge. So uh, the, the imagery of the eyes of God go to and fro throughout the whole earth is a picture of his omniscience. So the testing here is uh, the godly is delivered out of testing, perasmos, or temptation, which it's put for the failure of the temptation. So it could be translated, I think, uh, picking up the literal sense of the figure of speech, it delivers the godly out of condemnation. Because the yielding to the temptation is what brings about the condemnation. And so you look at the angels and uh, that left their first estate, as Jude puts it, and they are judged by God. They yielded to that temptation and came under divine judgment. The people in the ancient world at Noah's time uh, refused his message of righteousness, and so they were uh, judged by the flood. And they, those living in Sodom and Gomorrah uh, refused to obey God, and so they are judged, they are disobedient, they have yielded to their temptation, and so this is the consequence. So the word temptation is put for uh, yielding to temptation and experiencing the consequences of it. So the Lord knows how to deliver the godly and to reserve the unjust. So we have this word unjust, which is in the green square over here, adikos. Dike is the Greek word for righteousness. And we have various uh, adjectives and other words formed on that basic, basic noun, dikaios, meaning 
uh, righteousness, dikaiosune, meaning righteousness, dikaios, meaning righteous, dikaiosune, meaning righteousness. And the A at the beginning of the word is the, is the, in the Greek, that's the letter alpha, and this is technically called the alpha privative. I learned that in high school, in a high school Sunday school class. So, you, you know, that just, we have to learn these things. Um, and that means that they are not just, it's not talking about experiential righteousness, it's talking about the fact that they are not justified. Dikaios and dikaiosune are the same words that are used for justification. That when we are sinners, we are, we are born spiritually dead, separated from God, and it is by faith alone in Christ alone that we are declared just. We, res- we are declared just because at the instant we trust Christ, Christ's righteousness, God's righteousness is given to us. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. So when we trust Christ, God instantly credits to us, clothes us with his righteousness. And then he looks at us and declares us righteous. Underneath the robes of righteousness, we're still sinners. There's no infusion of righteousness. There's no change where we're made somewhat morally better so that there are some sins we can't commit anymore. There's no change that occurs to us other than we are now clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and it is on the basis of his righteousness that we are declared justified. It is a legal or forensic uh, conclusion or judgment made by God. So the word unjust here doesn't refer to the fact that they're experientially unjust, but that they are in their very being unjust. They are not declared righteous. They are unjustified. So the contrast in this passage is a word that I've always had some trouble with because it's one of those abstract concepts that that can be used in with a slightly different senses in different passages, and that is the word eusebase. And the EU at the beginning has a positive sense, like a eulogy, two Greek words, or a Greek word with the same prefix. Logos is the means word. So logia means a statement or a a discourse and you put the EU at the beginning, and it's a good discourse, something you're saying that is nice and beautiful. So we get our English word eulogy from that, that Greek word. So EU, also you have various other words that are uh, used that way. You have evangelizo, which is the verb for to evangelize, to give the what kind of news? Good news. Because even though we pronounce the U, the upsilon, as a V, which is how Greek, Greeks pronounce it, so this would be evsebes, uh, if you pronounced it according to Greek pronunciation, then um, in evangelizo it means giving the good news. So this is something good, and sebes has to do with uh, your, your spiritual life. 
So here it is used in contrast to the unjust, and so it means, as you go through the passage, it means not those who were who were godly or walked around with their Bible in their hand, acting as if they were uh, spiritually mature. Here it is simply talking about their position in Christ. And, uh, and or in relation to Lot, it would be his Old Testament, the fact that he, he in the Old Testament has imputed righteousness. And he is described um, as the opposite of, of godly. He's described as, un, as, uh, the, the, as an example to those who would live ungodly at the end of verse 6. So ungodly in that connotation has or in that context has a connotation of being an unbeliever, not having imputed righteousness. So we have these two words, godly and unjust, telling us that God knows how to deliver the believer, even a believer who is not walking with the Lord like Lot. He knows how to uh, deliver them from the consequences of spiritual death and eternal condemnation, but he keeps, and there's the Greek word here, tereo, he keeps uh, the unjust, the unbeliever, under punishment for the day of judgment. This is what is described in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. At the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, which we describe by the term millennium, or the end of the kingdom, the messianic kingdom, we learn that there is a rebellion. Satan has been uh, incarcerated in the abyss for a thousand years, and now he is released and he leads a revolt against Christ and against his kingdom. A time of perfect environment, perfect education. Uh, you have all perfect systems. The bureaucracy is perfect. But men who are born, men and women born in the period of the millennium are still born with sin natures and they reject Christ, they reject the gospel and Satan is released and he leads just an untold number with, it's, the text says without number you can't number them, so millions are going to follow him in a rebellion against Christ and they're going to be incinerated by God with uh, fire and brimstone. And then we change the scene to the final judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. Who's the one who sits on the great white throne? It's not God the Father. It is the Lord Jesus Christ because in, I believe it's John 6, Jesus said, all judgment has been given to me because he is our peer in that he is truly human. So we are not judged by the Father. We are judged by our high priest who has in all points been tested or tempted as we are yet without sin. You know, in, in centuries ago, the principle of being judged by your peers was derived from this in the text, that it is a human being on the throne who judges us. Jesus Christ is still in hypostatic union, true humanity coupled with undiminished deity. So he sees a great white throne and him who sat on it. 
from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. What a tremendous and dramatic image that all of those who have rebelled are scared to death and they are fleeing God as fast as they can and there's no place for them to hide. And then John says, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and the books were opened. So the accounting ledgers of people's spiritual lives is opened. That One of them is called the book of life. And the dead are judged according to their works. Now, what this is, the term works doesn't, doesn't relate to sin, okay? It relates to everything, okay? It's not, they're, it's not that he's saying they're judged according to their sin. It's judged according to their works. In other words, all they're going to do is pile up all their works to see if they're high enough to reach the standard of Christ's perfect righteousness. And so, it, because Christ already paid for their sin, but they have a problem. We all have the same problem, and that is though Christ paid for our sin, the sin penalty is paid for, we are still born unrighteous and we are born spiritually dead. So there has to be a solution to the lack of righteousness problem, and that's through imputed righteousness. So all their works are piled up to see if they meet the standard of perfect righteousness and they all fall short. They're judged according to the works by the things written in the books, And then he goes on to say, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades. Hades referring to Sheol and the the, uh, torments, the compartment of Hades where the unbelievers go when they die, uh, delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to their works. They're not judged according to their sin. Do they have enough good works to reach that level of righteousness? And, of course, no one does. So then death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. This tells us everyone that shows up at the great white throne is an unbeliever, and they all are cast into the lake of fire. This is called the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life, and you get written in the book of life when you trust Christ as your Savior. That's all. doesn't matter what else because if you're written in the book of life, you have received the righteousness of God and so you're declared righteous and you're saved. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So this is the judgment that is spoken of in verse 9. They are under punishment for the day of judgment. So it defines these terms, godly and unjust, very clearly, believer and unbeliever. And then verse 10 begins, and especially, goes on to say, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed, They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Now, there's a lot of terminology here that we have to understand. Uh, And it doesn't actually say like it's translated in the uh, Greek, I mean, in the New King James Version here. It starts off with this word translated especially in the 
in the English, which is a good translation of the Greek. The Greek word is an adverb meaning especially and especially indicates that something applies specifically or particularly to an individual or a group. Okay, so when he says and especially, he's saying and particularly. This applies to those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Now that doesn't sound like these are nice people, does it? I mean, just from looking at that in the English, you can tell pretty well that they're not, they're not good people. God doesn't look with a lot of favor on them. But we have to look at, at what is written in the Greek because it's different from what you anticipate it meaning here in, um, in verse 10. In fact, I'm going to go back. Maybe I think I added it. I did. Okay, so especially those who walk. So this is a participle of the Greek word poruomai. That's not the word we expect to see here. The verb we expect to see here is peripateo. Peripateo, which I have further down that I didn't transliterate it, means to walk. Peruomai means to sort of go on a journey, uh, to travel. Uh, to march. It, it has a, a wide range of meanings. It's a, it's a broad, broad term, and context defines whether it has uh, a certain specificity. Uh, the, uh, in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, in the Septuagint, it translates the pretty general word of Hebrew, halak, which has the same thing, walk, go, you know, it's just general for travel, any number of different ways it could be translated because it's a, it covers a variety of circumstances. And literally, it means to go on a journey, to travel, to walk, uh, to go somewhere. Uh, it um, has the idea of maybe following somebody. It can even refer to uh, departure. In a figurative sense, it, it's used to describe a person's life. How do you walk? We talk about the walk of a Christian, which is talking about the Christian way of life. So peruomai has a, a, a lot of different uses. It's used in the Old Testament, translating passages that talk about walking before God, as in 1 Kings 8.25, or walking in righteousness as well. In the New Testament, it's used 150 times, it's used for sending someone on a mission. It's used for following Christ in discipleship. It's used of Jesus going to heaven in the ascension. It's used of Jesus uh, descending to make proclamation to the spirits in prison. So it doesn't have a necessarily good or bad meaning. It's just talking about uh, going somewhere. But the lexicons all make the point that in Jude and Peter, it describes a bad way of life. It's a, it has a negative because of the context. Now, the reason I, I, I brought this up is because the concept of walking, when we read a walk according to the flesh, this is a phrase that is used in the English in Romans 8.1, a verse that is familiar to most of us, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The trouble is, both verses translate the Greek with the same phrase, but it's not the same phrase in, in Greek. It's different, and it's significant that it's different. In, in Romans 8, where several times it talks about walking according to the flesh, the verb is peripateo, which is an intentional walk in a specific direction, putting one foot in front of another, go, going somewhere uh, intentionally. Whereas peruamai can have the idea of, of just generally moving around without any intention or any, any specific direction. The other thing that we find here is the phrase according to the flesh and according to the spirit in Romans 8 used a specific uh, terminology in Greek. Same thing you find about when you walk by means of the spirit and not according to the flesh in Galatians 5. According to the flesh is kata, the prepositions kata, and it means according to a certain standard. But that's not what we have here. We have a little significant word that's used here. The word according is the Greek word episo, which means it has general several meanings after or back, but it is used in the sense if something is after you, what's it doing? If you're moving somewhere and something's af- walking after you, it's following you. In fact, in various places, we've all familiarize ourselves with these verses where Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, follow me. But in those passages, he doesn't use the standard Greek word for follow. He uses opiso. He says, follow after me, come after me. And so what he is saying by using this, this phraseology and idiom is he is saying, follow my leadership. So what we see here is something different uh, in the way Peter is talking here. It's not like what is described for believers in Romans 8 and follow, 8, 1 and following, but here he is saying, especially to those who follow the leadership of their sin nature. That's what opiso means. It means to follow after, to follow the leadership. Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. Come after me. Same same word. And so it has that sense of following the leadership of something. So he is talking specifically about those who are following the leadership of their sin nature. Flesh refers to their sin nature. And then he will say that you're following the sin nature in the lust of uncleanness and despised authority. All of these words we need to look at in a little more detail. But first, the sin nature, the flesh. We've described this many, many times, and this is one of the most brilliant charts that, uh, and I still use it all the time, grew up watching my pastor use this chart, and we know that it most of you saw it as well. What drives the sin nature is your lust, the epithemia. That's what is mentioned here. It's the driving motivational factor. It's the desire for something. And that desire is expressed in two opposing directions. 
And this is why many people appear to be somewhat contradictory because we all have these desires. Some of them go in the direction of some kind of morality. Even the most antinomian unbeliever has some standards. I mean, if you look at our culture and you look at the antinomian left today, they have standards. If you don't conform to their worldview, then you are a racist. It doesn't have anything to do with race and ethnicity anymore whatsoever. In fact, the terminology, I'm, I'm going to get into this more and more, but the terminology that they are using is critical social justice. That's the name of their worldview. And it's in contrast to the biblical worldview of biblical justice or the biblical worldview. Don't call it the Christian worldview. Call it the biblical worldview because this started back in the Garden of Eden and after the flood. It's the Judeo-Christian worldview that is grounded in the Scripture. So the Bible gives us one concept of justice and what society is supposed to be like and the critical uh, the critical social justice worldview is completely different. So I'm just going to introduce about that much tonight. We'll build on this both in Judges on Tuesday night and uh, in this, this passage. But, but you look at the social justice warriors out there, and they have a code of conduct. And if you don't fit their code of conduct, then you see what, what is happening right now on the streets of uh, uh, of Minneapolis and what happened last summer in Portland, still happening in Portland and in Seattle and in a number of other places. You have all of these riots and everything because their standards have been violated. So the sin nature has standards, and you have on the one hand the asceticism and legalism, for example, among the Pharisees in the, in the Gospels. They had a rigid code of conduct. They were very moral, but they hated Jesus because he didn't go along with their standard of righteousness. And the other trend that goes opposite that is towards licentiousness. It's towards lasciviousness. For example, down in verse 18, we'll read, For when they, that is the false teachers, speak great swelling words of emptiness. See, that's the message of false teachers. It has no, it's not associated with truth. It's empty meaning. They allure through the what? Through the lusts of the flesh. That, that, what, what is it that motivates and attracts people to Marxism? It's that I don't have to work and somebody's going to give me money. I'm going to get what other people work for. It, it, it's motivated by, by, by greed. And so you have licentiousness, you have lasciviousness, and it's basically antinomianism. Antinomianism means against law, against the rules. It's, it, we can do whatever we want to do. It's what Judges is saying when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So asceticism and legalism take you to moral degeneracy. You're as moral in your viewpoint as possible. The Pharisees were moral, but they were arrogant and they were degenerate. And you have immoral degeneracy. Mostly we think of degenerate as those who are like the, the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. But you can be very moral and be a degenerate because arrogance makes you degenerate. 
So this is, this is the sin nature, and it, the lust patterns drive us. And the word for lust in the Greek is epithemia, and it has to do with desire or lust. And I want to just go through a few passages because this is, this is so foundational. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, get rid of the distractions in your thinking. Because girding up the loins was what an athlete would do is he would take his robes and he would tie them around his waist and so that he wouldn't have something getting in the way while he's running a race. So you want to clear your minds of all the distractions, be sober. That means think objectively on the basis of truth. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he called but as he who called you is holy, that is unique, distinct, set apart, you also be holy, that is set apart to God in all of your conduct. So it's either following the lusts of your flesh or walking by the Holy Spirit. That's Galatians five, eighteen and following. First Peter two eleven, he goes Peter goes on to say, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. That's an important principle. These fleshly lusts destroy a person's soul. When a soul is destroyed, it can't think anymore. It is going to reverse right and wrong. It's going to say that black is white and white is black, and you read the paper, you listen to the news, and you say, how come people don't see what's really going on? It is because they have been following their fleshly lust, which has dis- which destroyed and corrupted their soul. They can't think anymore. They can't understand truth because, as Romans 1, uh, 18 and 19 point out, they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness to where now they are so divorced from reality, they don't know what is right anymore. Second Peter 1, 3 and 4 as his divine power has given to us all things pertaining to life, and there's that word eusebeia. It's having, uh, and, and maybe the best way to translate this and understand it now that I've gotten into how Peter is using this is having to do with being, being justified. All things that pertain to life and justification. That's the sense there maybe. I've always struggled with how to best translate that word. Uh, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature because you have already escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. As believers, we've escaped that corruption that is in the world through lust, but we still have the problem. And then we come to the passage I just looked at, in Second Peter 2.18, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh. That's the hook. That's the bait on the hook that they're using to capture people into their, their fake religion. And that's what the critical social justice worldview is. It is a religion. Uh, Dr. Woods did a great presentation on critical uh, race theory, I think that was his topic, at, at the Chafer Conference uh, three or four weeks ago, and he outlines this. So we're going to come back to all these issues. So uh, that's what's going on here. 
Uh, and then the last chapter of Second Peter. Notice all my examples are coming out of either First Peter or Second Peter. He makes a huge issue out of this. Know this first: that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. So Second Peter two ten says, especially those who follow the lead of their sin nature by the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dictionaries. I didn't have time to put all these words in there, so I just wanted them on the screen. Uh, the word there uh, of despising authority is curiotes, and this relates to any authority. Now, what that means is that, that their authorities in this life are all set within the context of the divine institutions. We spent a lot of time studying this. I'm, I'll remind you what they are. Divine institution number one is personal responsibility. Nobody, it want, the, the current worldview, this critical social justice worldview, is part of it is identity politics. It's your group. It's not the individual. What matters is if you're white, that's your identity. And it doesn't matter what you do as an individual. You're guilty because you're white. Uh, black, or uh, it has to do with gender, whether you're a woman, whether you're a man. Uh, all of this has to do with identity. It's an attack on the first divine institution. Who is the authority in the first divine institution? God. Every individual is accountable to God. So what he is saying here is that this lust of uncleanness, the word there is the, let me see, I don't have that up there. It's miasma, and it has to do with a, a sewer or a septic tank or something of that nature. You get the picture. So those who are, are, are unsaved are, are defiled. And that's what that word means. It's their life, their thinking is in the sewer. It's in the septic tank. And um, so the, the lust has taken their, their thinking and everything into the septic tank, and they despise uh, uh, authority. That's the, word, the second word in the list, kata freneo, which means to despise, to reject. And that's what antinobian does. It rejects all these authorities. So divine institution number one, the authority is God. Divine institution number two is marriage. The authority is the man. And the attack on gender identity today is, is unprecedented. The worst thing you can be is a white heterosexual male. According to them, that's the most evil creature on the planet, and we have to be done away with. So they despise authority, and they want to establish themselves as their own authority because what does Romans 13 say? All authority has been established by God. They, want, they reject God's authority, so they reject all the authorities that God establishes in uh, government, God establishes what the leaders in government, in nations. He established national identity, national leadership, national government. So all the divine institutions have a certain authority. So they despise that. They want to overturn that. Every divine institution is being attacked. Individual responsibility, marriage, family, uh, human government, National nationalism, biblical nationalism, and Israel. There's an attack on Israel to get rid of everything. The, 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 the critical 
social justice movement wants to destroy all of those things. That's their target. Uh, they are presumptuous and self-willed. The word for presumptuous is the word, word the third word down, tometes, and it has to do with a reckless person, someone who is arrogant, uh, presumptuous. Presumptuous means they fail to observe the limits of what is permitted or appropriate. So they reject that. That's antinomianism. That's a good description of antinomianism. People who reject and, uh, the, and fail to observe the limits of what is permitted or appropriate. And then the, um, the self-will, that's the phrase, the word outhedes, which means self-willed or self-absorbed. So we've studied the fact that arrogance manifests itself several ways, and we develop various skills. We start with self-absorption. It's all about me. You just think it's all about you, but it's all about me. I'm more important than you are, and I'm just going to act like you're important just so you'll like me better. So, because it's all about me. So we're all self-absorbed, and we indulge that which we want. And then we'll justify it, self-justification. And that leads to self-deception. And self-deception, we treat ourselves more and more like gods, and that leads to self-deification, and it's just a horrible cycle of self-destruction. So that's what this passage is talking about. Uh, it is a horrible picture of these false teachers, of all false teachers, of all everybody who promotes a non-biblical world view is, fits this pattern. So when we look at all of that, let's line it up and just see what this passage talks about. First of all, what it is saying regarding these false teachers is that they follow the lust of their sin nature. They're driven by the most base desires that a human being can be guilty of. And the passage in 1 Peter 2.11 tells us that these lusts war against the soul. They have corrupted, distorted, and destroyed these people's souls. Sin does that to every one of us. That's why we need forgiveness. That's why we need cleansing. That's why we have to recognize who we are in Christ. The only thing that can change us is to stop being conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have to learn, learn the Word of God. Their souls are warped. Their values are completely reversed. And... Um, there are a lot of different ways you can go with that, and we can talk about those. In the ancient church, we had Gnostics, you had legalists, you had Judaizers, and you had heretics like Arius who denied the eternality of Christ, which means he denied the undiminished deity of Christ. And you, I could walk you through the, the Middle Ages and the early modern period, and we could go after a heretical group after a heretical group after a heretical group and just see so many illustrations of how this has played itself out throughout the church age. But as we come into modernism and postmodernism, we see the rise of deism, the idea that God just creates everything and walks, winds it up like a watch and walks away from it. And then that led to more atheism and agnosticism, which is, well, you know, there's one chance out of ten quadrillion, jillion, whatever, that there might be a God. So I'll just say I'm an agnostic. 
Um, you have the gospel according to, to Darwin. It's really good news. It's good news in evolution because that means there's no creator God that you're answerable to. Isn't that great news? But let's look at the flip side of the coin. It means that you are a cosmic accident. If there's no God, creator God, you're just a cosmic accident with no meaning and no purpose and no value and no significance whatsoever. This is at the core of the gospel according to Karl Marx. Marxism gave us lots of things, including Stalinism, the horrors of Stalinism. You know, we always talk about Hitler. Nobody ever accuses somebody of being a, uh, like Stalin. But Stalin was a thousand times worse than Hitler. Hitler murdered six million Jews in the Holocaust and probably another two or three million gypsies and Jehovah's Witnesses and, and homosexuals. But Stalin is responsible for the murder of somewhere between 60 million and 100 million, maybe more. By the way, tomorrow is April, April the 16th. That is National Holodmor or Golodmor Remembrance Day in Ukraine. This is the memory of a, a horrible thing that Stalin did. Stalin hated the Ukrainians. U Ukraine it was the breadbasket of Europe. It's where, uh, I mean, of, of Europe, of Russia. It's where they grew grain and wheat. And he sent the uh, Red Army into Ukraine in 1932 and 1933 to gather up every speck of wheat that they could find and to take it all back to Mother Russia and left the Ukrainians to starve. In those two years, between 3 million and 12 million, see, they don't even know how many died. Between 3 million and 12 million Ukrainians starved to death. In the spring of 1933, this forced starvation in Ukraine escalated so badly, it was the worst of the two years. Because many in the villages, in the small towns, had all of their food removed. By spring, there was nothing left to eat. Deaths increased from 12,000 people per day in February to nearly 20,000 deaths per day in April of 1933. That's what communism brings you. That's what socialism brings. That is exactly what... Uh, these Marxist organizations of Black Lives Matter and Antifa want to bring to the United States. Do not be deceived by their propaganda. So this is what's happening. They follow the lust of their sin nature, their power lust, their lust for recognition, their lust for money. You've all probably heard about the woman, Patrice Coolers who's one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, and they've discovered that uh, she owns, I've heard, I read three, yesterday I read five different homes, all, she's a multi, she, her real estate holdings uh, reflect uh, multiple million dollars, three to five million dollars. And all of this money that went to, that was donated by so many different corporations uh, went to Black Lives Matter last year, and now she's able to buy all these things. That is what happens in Marxism. 
is the leaders are the ones who line their pockets and not the people, although that's who they talk about all the time is justice for the people. The second thing is that this lust is identified as the lust of uncleanness. It's better translated lust, which makes like lust of a cesspool, like a cesspool. They have a septic tank in their souls. And it, it's just horrific. Their souls are dark. They don't know the truth. They're active suppressors of the truth. And when you and I try to even communicate with them, it's like talking for a foreign language. And now we have followers of them in our pulpits. In traditionally Bible-based denominations, there are purveyors of this filth who are dressed up as self-righteous, compassionate, virtue-signaling of the uh, modern woke generation. And they aren't woke, they are dead. They are spiritually dead, perhaps, for some of them. Others, they have been so deceived they, it, by, by Marxism. That's all woke means is you've awakened to Marxism. Third, they despise authority. In their perverted warp thinking, they believe all the divine institutions are the enemy of happiness, and so they're out to destroy all the divine institutions and all of the authorities that are established in the divine institutions. Yesterday, I was really surprised. I saw a video, a video interview between Robert Kennedy Jr. and Dr. Mercola, who is a doctor and a health expert. And Robert Kennedy was saying things I never thought I would hear out of the mouth of a Kennedy. And towards the close, he's, he's talking, he's, he just concluding said, people have to wake up to the fact that all of these governments and all of these movements around the world right now, due to the pandemic, are just trying to push this whole world into totalitarian tyranny. And we've got to stop it. Wow. What a moment. They despise authority. They, they want to set themselves up as the ultimate rulers. Fourth, they're antinomians. They reject all traditional values, all traditional morality, but they've set up their own value system and their own social justice. But it's not a... They're not concerned about true justice. They're just concerned about lining their own pockets at the expense of others. Uh, they don't understand what real justice is. They don't understand what sin is. And if you don't understand what sin is, you can't understand about justice. So it's totally at odds. It's a worldview totally at odds with biblical justice. Fifth, they're self-willed. They've maximized the, their arrogant skills and they're now seeking to make human hybrids. You've heard about this. Through genetic manipulation to create some kind of super race. And uh, through this genetic manipulation, they become their own creator gods in competition with the God of the Bible so they can define a totally new reality for the future. And six, in all of this, there are various religious and Christian leaders who are getting sucked into this. Uh, I heard today of a theology professor from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School who just announced yesterday or today that he's now an atheist. This is like the fourth or fifth uh, person of that stature who has announced they've become an atheist in the last couple of years. Okay, this, this is just, just absurd. You've got leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention who are pushing their churches 
towards critical social justice thinking, not biblical thinking. And Christians who are untaught and unlearned in the scriptures are just sucking it up. And this is the battle that is in front of us. And so what what Peter is saying here is not any different from what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. So he's talking about the last days of the church age. The latter days is a phrase that refers to all of the church age, but the last days refers to the times towards the end. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, we'll see that word in the next couple of weeks, disobedient to parents, reject authority, unthankful, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. As a preview of coming attractions, when we get to verse 12, what Peter says is these false teachers are like brute beasts. They've become animals. That is degrading. They, they are no longer acting like humans, valuing human life. They are like uh, brute beasts. And that's where all of these non-biblical worldviews lead. But guess what? God's still on his throne. God's still in control. None of this surprises God. It may surprise us. We may not want to live through this, but there are Christians who have lived through a whole lot worse in the past and God has sustained them, and the church is still strong, and church is mighty no matter who has railed against Christianity and tried to destroy the church because this is the body of Christ, and there's nothing that any power on this earth or in Satan's domain that can do anything against the body of Christ. We are kept by him forever. And so we have hope, a confident expectation, and we should not let any of this ever get us down. We should be rejoicing as God is working out his plan, though we don't know what it is. Father, thank you for this time we've had to look at your word, to be reminded of the fact that we live in the devil's world and what its characteristics are, that the disguises are off now. We see the realities that are there and we can stand fast in your word. And Father, we pray that we might take, not take these things lightly, but we may take them to heart and recognize how important it is. Now is the time to strengthen ourselves in your word because we don't know what's coming, but it doesn't look good. But we know that it will be a great opportunity for us to be a witness and a testimony to your grace and your love no matter what is involved. And we look forward to being able to be that kind of a witness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.